You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Jacob dies. Spoiler alert. But not really, because we've been on his deathbed for a few weeks now. So what could we possibly have to glean from this passage? Well, at the end of chapter 49, we have the death of Jacob. But in the first part of chapter 50, we have Jacob's burial. So I want to get right into it, okay? Our first point is, in death, we have hope. In death, we have hope, okay? So the type of movies I like are the ones I think most movies have, which are like pretty much happy endings, where after the battle, after the war, after some adventure, the hero or the heroes, they ride off into the sunset. That's why when the Lord of the Rings trilogy came out, one painful year after the other, I had to endure the cliffhanger ending until the final installment where Frodo and the Fellowship of the Ring, they finally get to ride off into the sunset so to speak, and then they, they come home, right, to the Shire. Everything's, like, all good in the world and all that stuff. So that's how Hollywood films typically end their movies, with happy endings. But biblical stories are completely different. Biblical stories, the heroes don't ride off into the sunset, no. You see, in the Bible, the heroes die. The heroes die. And the difference is not incidental. Why is that? Well, because in Hollywood, they know they have nothing better to offer than a happily ever after. They've got nothing else to offer. For them, there is nothing outside of rescuing that damsel in distress. For them, there's nothing outside of making off with the loot and getting yourself into, you know, paradise or whatever. For them, there's nothing better than winning the war. That's it for them. But you see, for biblical men and women, or heroes if you want to call them that, they find that a good death is a fitting end to a good life. It is a reality that I I think shouldn't be shied away from, especially as believers. And that death, for us, we have to understand, is really only the beginning to a new beginning. It is. So Jacob's experience was that he faced death. But all the while, he still firmly trusted in God's promises. And in God's promises, there were a couple hopes that he was resting on. And I want to share a couple of those sub-points here. And so firstly, Jacob had a hope of eternal life. Okay, so Jacob says this. He says, I'm gathered to be my people. That's a key verse right there. And some people think that he meant to say, well, I'm just going to join everyone in the grave. But that's not what Jacob meant. He had something else in mind. Because what he said when he said, I am to be gathered to my people, those words weren't just simply, I'm going to die and be a part of everyone, part of the dirt and part of the ground. No, those words were actually words of faith. For some people, they they think to die is merely to say, I'm going to return back to dust. That's what a lot of non-believers say. They'll say so poetically, we're all just worm food at the end. Right? We're all just worm food. So when they say that, they're implying that we're really a product of the ground under our feet and that one day 
we will again be a part of the same ground. Do you remember that movie Lion King? Of course you do, right? It's like when Mufasa from The Lion King gave his son a lesson in life. Mufasa said, everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. As king, you need to understand the balance and respect all the creatures from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. And then young Simba said, but dad, don't we eat the antelope? Mufasa said, yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become like the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. What crazy justification, right? Anyways, and so we're all connected, he says, in the great circle of life. Cue the music. But that's not what Jacob believes, and that's not what the Bible teaches us. He had a form of anticipation that where his people are, he will be also. So whether you believe in evolution or creationism, get this. You are still acknowledging that your existence is part of something more than simply just dust. Like, for instance, if you buy into evolution, then people like you or other people who believe in that are simply random chance. In other words, they live their lives as if they're their own God, right? But a God who obviously has an end. But if you, like Jacob, who believed in creation, then you are, in essence, returning back to God where your people have gathered, okay? In fact, that's what Ecclesiastes 12.7 Ecclesiastes 12, says. It says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. You see, Jacob is this. He is voicing faith in his creator. He's by saying that he will be gathered to his people. So get this. He knows that he is from his dad, Isaac, and that Isaac is from Abraham. And then if you go down their lineage, you can go right back to Adam. And who made Adam? Who made Adam? It was God who breathed the breath of life into him. So Jacob was saying this. In my death, I am going back to my creator, to my God, who made my dad, who made my dad's dad, who made my dad's dad, and went on and on. I am going back to him because that's where everyone's at. But that's not the only only thing Jacob hoped for as he died. He also hoped for the appearance of God's kingdom on earth, of God's kingdom. Now, that was the whole point of his desire to be buried in the cave of, of Machpelah in Canaan. Okay. So we might think that this was simply kind of a sentimental desire, saying, hey, when I die, can you bury me in that field with the cave Machpelah, right? Can you please bury me there? Because, you know, we might think um, it has a sentimental feeling because I was home for him. You know, I remember uh, when my grandfather passed away, or before he passed away, he mentioned how it would be nice for him to visit Korea one last time and maybe even die there in his motherland. Now, before he, now the thing is, he passed away here actually in Fairfax, a place that's been his home for nearly 40 years. But I've also heard of people paying huge amounts of money to bring a body back to be buried at, at, at home, wherever that home might be for them. So we can understand if Jacob had that kind of similar moment of sentimentality, but that wasn't the case for him. If Jacob was being sentimental, then he would have said this, hey, can you take me back down that road towards Bethlehem and bury me there? Why? Because someone very special is buried there. His beloved Rachel was buried there, wasn't she? 
Remember, Rachel had been his first love from the beginning. And we know he really loved her because even in the last chapter, chapter 48, he even mentions her when he talks about the blessings. But Rachel is not buried in the cave of Machpelah. Jacob wants to, be married, wants to be buried there for some reason. He wants to be buried where Abraham and Sarah were buried in Machpelah. He wants to be buried where Isaac and Rebekah were buried in Machpelah. He wants to be buried there. And get this, who else is buried there? His first wife, Leah. So Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and his first wife, Leah, was buried there. But still, why? Is it because of how much he realizes he loves Leah? Did he come to his senses and realize, no, no, she's my first wife? Well, no. He's still not being sentimental. Instead, his desire to get buried there is simply a request, or I should say, a final act of his faith. And I'll explain. Jacob knows that the promises of God are tied to that land in Canaan. That this land will be the kingdom where God will one day rise. Okay, so follow me for a second. That area is a tiny field with a burial cave. There's nothing else there. There's no massive altar. There's no amazing temple. There's no ceremonial thing or place to make it significant. In fact, Jacob could have easily been buried in the best catacomb or in the tomb in Egypt, but instead he asked his sons to take him to Canaan because for Jacob, it was all about the promise. It was all about the promise of God. It was not the location. And it just happened to be that that location emphasized the promise. Okay? That emphasized the promise. That location, it wasn't about that tiny field. It wasn't the fact that just Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca and everyone was there. No, that location was symbolic because that represented God's promise. That location pointed back to God's promise. And Jacob said, I want to be back there. If God said my promise was in Egypt, then he would have stayed there. If God said it would be in Goshen, he would have gone there. You see, even in death, Jacob still had hope for the kingdom of God. Some people on their deathbeds might get discouraged, let's say, if something didn't happen in their lifetime. Oh, I was hoping that this would happen or for that to happen. But Jacob, knowing he was about to die any moment, he had only one hope. It wasn't that he wanted more kids. It wasn't that he wanted to have another wife or that he wanted to experience more things or, or experience his bucket list. No, he only had one hope, and that was for God's kingdom. God's kingdom. And he knew, even though it wasn't happening in his lifetime, that it was coming, it's going to happen, and that's where his faith rested upon. On God's kingdom, on his promise. It's about hope. But certain hope in the face of death. It sounds kind of like a contradiction if you think about it, right? To be hopeful and yet certain about that hope. But I would define it this way. Hope is the anticipation. And we can be certain because we're trusting in the work and in the character of God. Now the reason so many of us still live with great fear. And the reason why a lot of us here every single day still live with a lot of anxiety Okay, it's because our hope is still resting in what is seen rather than what is unseen. That's what Romans 8.25 says. Our hope is still resting on, let's say, 
unmet expectations or incomplete accomplishments or incomplete successes. Our hope is still, on, is still hinging on the desire to see, let's say, our spouses change or our children change or get better or our family members change. And so we say things like, oh, I need to wait. I don't want to go until I see this person change in their lives. Oh, I don't want to go until I experience this or I experience that. Then I can die. What does that mean? It means then your hope, when you can breathe your last breath and say, I'm good with this, your hope is really all about your satisfaction. Right? Does that make sense for a second? It becomes about our satisfaction rather than in the fact that whether you go or not, God's will is happening. God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to save whom he saves. He's going to extend mercy upon those he extends mercy to. He'll do what he has to do. God's will will come to pass. And I think it's so important to have this type of hope as we live our lives. I know it sounds kind of morbid to think about hope and death, even for people like us. Maybe you're still, like, young and vital, and you're thinking, I, I, I have all the time in the world. Maybe it seems a bit morbid, but it's not. It's not because we need to walk each day knowing that this life and your next breath and the things that this world has to offer is not everything. It's not everything. That the pain and trials that we're suffering, it'll all seem like a blip in the radar. That all stuff that you're going through right now, your circumstances, they are all just a small thing in the scope of eternity. In fact, this should be a massive encouragement to our brothers and sisters who are outside these U.S. walls and being persecuted for their faith. Why? Because they know that even their suffering right now is short-lived and that, like Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But how do we develop such hope that can face death even without flinching. How can we all, in, in, in the midst of our difficulty, how can we say, God, you're, you're still there. God, you're still leading me. God, you still have my future ahead of me. You know my plans. Well, God in his graciousness and his mercy, he helps us in our weakness. And that really goes to our second point. My second point is this. God, he signs his promises to us. He signs. Now, I've heard of too many people make some sort of contractual agreement over a handshake, right? Like, my word is as strong as oak. Psh, put it there, partner, right? Okay, people have never done that to me. I'm glad. But um, as someone who has worked a lot of kind of administrative jobs here, even at church, I can tell you that there is a lot of shady folks, a lot. So let's say we had a, a need to fix the parking lines or kind of re-asphalt the, uh, the parking space or contract a snow remover or hire a landscaper or get a roofer or whatever it is, right? And so they, these workers, they'll come and say, yeah, I'll give you a great deal. I'll give you a great deal. You're a church. And they always say this, you're a, ch- you're a pastor? I'm a Christian. Like as if now I'm supposed to be like, oh, my gosh, this is meant to be, right? So they'll say, you're, I'm a Christian. So they say, a write-up is unnecessary, it's unnecessary. So they'll give me a really low deal, and they'll say, we'll help you out. We'll fix everything. And on the day of the job, they'll come, and they'll give me a little piece of paper. And, and I'll say, that's not the price. They'll hike up the price saying, well, you know what? We just found out we had to hire more guys. 
oh, he found out that we had to buy more supplies. Or, you know, my boss, he actually wasn't too cool with the initial price that we set beforehand. Whatever it was, the list goes on and on and on. And so it should have always been, everything should have been done on paper. It should have been done on paper, signed and in our pocket. Now, so God, he doesn't sign papers to guarantee his promises, okay? But he does give us signs which confirm his word. He does give us signs which confirm his word. Okay, so now we're entering into chapter 50. Is everyone okay? This is a lot. I get it. I wrote it. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so hang in with me. So we're entering into chapter 50. This is the account of the burial of Jacob. Now, burial customs, we know it varies from place to place, from culture to culture, and so on. So we shouldn't be surprised that what we have here are Egyptian customs. After all, Joseph, he was the number two, right, the prime minister of Egypt. And so he was the one making all the arrangements. So even in the midst of all these Egyptian customs, we get to see a display of Joseph's faith. And I'll tell you. You see, in ancient Egypt, embalmers and physicians were very two distinct professions, just like it is today. Joseph, he didn't have embalmers come in. He had the physicians embalm and prepare the body, meaning this. Joseph, he avoided using the embalmers so he could avoid the mystical, religious, ceremonial rites that these embalmers typically use in their practices. In other words, Joseph is saying, hey, prepare the body, but do without all that mystical nonsense because we believe in the God of Israel. I don't need all those chants. I know where my father's at. We believe in the one true God, so just prepare his body for us. So Joseph, so Joseph he stayed true to his faith and his God. Then I want you guys to notice the length of the mourning over Jacob. Egypt mourned for Jacob for 70 days. So 70 days, not to mention the extra two days when they reached Canaan. Now, why is that important? Because get this, Egyptians would only mourn for their pharaoh for 72 days. They would only mourn for their pharaoh for 72 days. So what was Joseph saying? He was saying this. He's saying, my father isn't just some Joe Schmo. He's not some regular person. He is what? He is, he is kind of a king-like person. Rather, he is like an heir. You see, from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob, you see God's blessing is upon him. God's done great things through my father. And through his father's father. And through his father's father, you see? And so Joseph, he asks Pharaoh for permission to journey back to Canaan. And Pharaoh, he agrees. And he sends an impressive entourage. All of Pharaoh's officials go. All the dignitaries of his court, including all of Egypt. The chariots and the horsemen. And of course, Jacob's family. It says in verse 9 here, it was a very great company. In other words, it was massive. It was huge. But why? Why is this all recorded? I know the Bible likes talking about specifics, but what does this have to do with anything? Because it's interesting. When you read of Abraham's death, what was, what was the description? It said this pretty much. <clears throat> he died. He was gathered to his people, and his sons buried him. The end, period. And then when we talk about Isaac's death, it said, Isaac died, he breathed his last, <coughs> he 
he was gathered to his people, and his sons buried him, period. Like, they're very concise about these other guys, right? In fact, later on, when Joseph dies in Egypt, we simply read, he died, he was embalmed, and they placed him in a coffin in Egypt, period. So what's with all this hoopla over Jacob's death? Remember, there's nothing insignificant about how the Bible was laid out. Every word, every story, every point is meant to bring glory to God and to reveal God. So why this massive entourage? Why this huge company, all this fanfare, so to speak? God is using signs to validate his promise. Excuse me. This great procession to Canaan was, here's the first point, was a sign or foretaste of the great exodus to come. Okay? Of the great exodus to come. Can you turn to neighbor and say the great exodus to come so I can drink? You see, this would be a sampling of how God would lead his people out of Egypt 400 years later. Remember, in chapter 46, God told Jacob this. He says, Jacob said, I don't know if I want to go. This is the promise. And why would you send me to Egypt, right? And then God said this, I'm your God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation there. Indeed, the people that was just a small ragtag group of 70 individuals became a monster nation there. And he says, I will go down to Egypt with you. And then what did he say? He said, and I will surely bring you back, right? I will bring you back. And how interesting, by the way, this is just a minor observation, but I thought it was kind of cool, how the chariots, the Bible of all things, decides to describe these chariots who had also gone with the people, and yet where do we hear the chariots the next time? They also are part of the exodus, only they're on the wrong side, right? No one else is intrigued? Okay. So what? I want to bring in some application here now. Now, we're all about signs and wonders. More than, and I think some of us are thinking, I need to sign like a shooting star, right? Or I want to see the Potomac River part, or something like that. I want to encourage you all with this. <clears throat> First of all, know that whatever, whatever we need right now, here in this life, God has already revealed it to us in Scripture, period, okay? Whatever you need. The truth of God, the revelation of God, anything that you need from God has already been revealed to us in Genesis through Revelation. It is already found in Scripture. Amen. Okay? The only sign and wonders are the truth in which God has already spoken to us, what he himself has already decided to reveal to us. Having said that, God also validates his truth, gives us signs of these truths by using people. Okay? Now, you see, a few nights ago, I had a... I had an EM brother who, here who took me out to dinner. He said the most, it was just, it was just mano y mano, it was awesome. And he said the most amazing and romantic thing anyone could ever say to me. He said, Pastor David, order whatever you want. <laughs> I said, you know my heart. You had me at hello, right? So we feasted. <clears throat> we talked, we laughed, I counseled. It was, it, was, it was good. It was an uplifting time. I felt blessed by him, and I'll tell you what. How do I know of God's grace at that moment? From, it's from people who just love on me. I, I feel good. I feel loved in those moments. How do I show people of God's love? It's when I love on them. Right? 
let's, let's not try to make this all mystical and say, no, for only, the only way that we can experience God's love is to receive his glory and see the heavens part. No. That could happen. But you see, the way that I show people God's love and the way that they experience God's love is when I shower love on them. How do I know that God forgives? It's when people forgive me for things that I do to them. They forgive me. They accept me. They love me. How do people know of God's protection? It's when I defend them from gossip. It's from, when I defend them from lies. These are the signs that we have. These are all the breadcrumbs that we need right now. The people here in chapter 50, they had a foretaste of God's deliverance, and it was through Joseph, and it was through the death of his father Jacob. We have a foretaste of grace and mercy when we reflect the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus to others. How can we expect our loved ones to turn to Jesus when they see nothing of him within us? Right? We might need to consider the fact that perhaps, get this, that perhaps your personal pursuit of holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness is the sign people need. Is anyone hearing me? More than your profession of faith saying, I'm a Christian, this is what I believe, this is what I think. More than any profession of faith, maybe what more people need is to see your faith at work rather than just hearing about your faith. Huh? You be the sign of God's love. You be the sign of God's mercy. You be the sign of God's grace. I remember a story about an individual needing money. True story. There were this person <clears throat> was a hard worker. He had like he had two jobs, but he was still kind of falling short because it's just bills are piling up. He had a lot of other things and he was doing his best, but he he needed money to pay the bills. And so he sheepishly told his small group of men, it was like four or five guys who got together. And the only reason he said it is because they kind of forced it out of him. They're like, tell me, what's your problem? There's something going on with your mind. There's something on your heart. I know. I can see it. What is it? It's like, oh, no, I'm just struggling with something. You know that's not the case. What's really on your mind? And so they kind of forced it out of him because he doesn't want to say that he has financial problems. He doesn't want to admit that he's struggling, right? So he finally said it. And after that, the brothers, they all heard, and they said, man, we, we love you. Well, let's just all pray for you right now. So they gathered around, and then, no joke, they were praying, and one of the brothers said, you know what, Lord, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And meanwhile, as they're kind of wrapping up their prayer, they opened their eyes, and there was another guy who was like, already had his checkbook out. And they said, what are you doing? He goes, give us a sign. He already gave us a sign. He needed money. I have money. I'm going to give it to him. Thank you, Lord. That's the sign. You be the sign of God's truth. You be the sign of God's generosity. You be the sign of God's grace. I pray that every single one of us here in this shining star EM will be stewards of God's good love. Don't you want to be that? I'm a recipient of that. I also want to be a steward of that too. Amen? All right, so bear with me, folks. We're going to keep going. So not only was it was it a foretaste of uh, <clears throat> was it foretaste of of the great exodus to come, but it was also the foretaste of um, of the final gathering of the nations of the Lord. Okay. Oftentimes in Scripture, when the Bible speaks of the great day of the glory of Messiah, 
it talks about this. Whenever they're saying the end, right? When the Messiah he comes and he and he and he creates his kingdom here on earth, it's usually paired with this: the regathering of the Israelites. But did you know this? It's coupled with the gathering of Gentiles too. So saying God's chosen people, the Israelites, but it's also talking about they're accompanied by the Gentiles. I want to read Isaiah chapter 2 real quick. Just a few verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Guess what? Micah chapter 4 says literally the same exact things and then in Isaiah chapter 56, I paraphrase, he says, I'm going to gather gather the exiles of Israel, and I'm going to gather all those people of my people. And he says, I'm also going to gather those whom I haven't gathered, meaning this. Not only will this holy mountain or the place of promise have my people, but it will also have people who are not my people who I will make my people. Does that make sense? And then in chapter 6, verse, uh, uh, verse 6 of 56 the Lord emphasizes, he says, that foreigners will come to bind themselves to the Lord. You see, it's not only God's people, but God is saying, you know what? It's to the Gentiles, to the people who seem like the covenant is totally out of their reach. It's to these people that I'm going to. It's, 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 to, it's to the Americans. Do you know that you guys are Gentiles? Right? We're like, what? Right? It's to the Koreans. Anyone who is not Jewish. Is to us. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one who broke down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Jesus is the one who, by his death on the cross, made possible the salvation of all the nations. Jacob's burial back in the promised land was a foreshadowing of this great day when people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue would gather together to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And I'm not talking about the current day Jerusalem where it's just racked with violence in the Middle East. The Bible speaks of a heavenly Jerusalem, the real Mount Zion, where the King and the Messiah and the Savior, Jesus Christ, stands and rules at the right hand of God. We're talking about that Jerusalem. But the signs, it didn't end with this funeral procession, no. The sign didn't end there. In fact, in the New Testament, tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the final and greatest sign. Because what happened then, up on that cross, when he said it is done, was the first fruit of the harvest that is to come. And what I mean by that is this. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God, he guarantees the resurrection of those who believe in him. I will rise from the dead. You see, my death is not the end of me because Jesus rose from the dead. So for the believer, yes, we will continue to receive a lot of uncertainty. Like who will marry? What kind of career we'll have? We'll face tragedies in life, accidents and health issues and money issues, school issues. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go there? But one thing we do have is the certainty of eternity. Because only in Jesus do we have the promise of eternal life. 
and the certainty of the success of God's kingdom here on earth. You see, only in Christ can we say and know that my life has meaning. My life has meaning. It has purpose. Only in Christ can we labor for the future and know that even when we're gone, even when David no longer exists, that God, he is still at work. Our death will not be our end just as the cross and the tomb was not the end for Jesus. We have the hope of glory even in death. And so I say to my brothers and I say to my sisters in Christ, Keep on believing, keep on persisting, keep on pressing hard, keep on going. Let the words of Apostle Paul coat your mind and your soul. For our light and temporary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs our troubles. Keep going, he says. Whatever it is. But also know that while life for us, it seems like it's a linear thing from point A to B. We're born, we live, and we die. That that's not the case for God. He knows all. He sees all. And so in his grace, he gives us sample after sample after sample of things to come, foreshadowing of his plans in ways that act as breadcrumbs of grace, signs of his love and presence. You are the signs of his love and presence. So keep your ears open. Lay your eyes upon the word and keep your heart meditating upon his sweet, amazing truths. God promises to lead us, to lead his people, and he will bless you and he will keep you. In the name of our Jesus, Savior and Lord, amen. You believe that? I believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your reminder. Truly. In a day and age where we simply want to give up on things, where we feel like there is no hope for certain things, that this sickness or ailment of ours just keep persisting, that it's hard to get rid of, that perhaps um, <clears throat> we can't, we're, we're kind of capped or we can't go any deeper or any higher in our professions or whatever you want to call it. Lord, and maybe a lot of people simply just want to give up. They're emotionally tired. They're physically just drawn out. Even when all the things in life that we thought were good and that would sustain us actually end up not sustaining us, but hurting us. God, we thank you for your message today that, that there is an eternity that is certain. That even in our weakness, Father, your strength will prevail, that you will lead us. And it is that hope of glory that will motivate us and keep us going. It is knowing, Lord, that we are given a greater and divine purpose in life, not simply to get satisfied and have, have our own hope satisfied, but, Lord, that we can serve you in ways that will, that will just bring eternal glory. That alone, Lord, motivates us and strengthens us. And gives us direction. And so for many of us right now, perhaps you guys are still struggling with that. I want to encourage you to take this moment and just pray. Say, God, I'm still struggling with direction. I'm still struggling with just a lot of burden on my shoulder. I'm overwhelmed right now. I'm questioning my relationships. I'm questioning my, my, my family ties. I'm questioning a lot of different things. And maybe right now, 
God simply says, can you just give it to me? Give it to me right now. Lay it before me. Surrender it to me. Open your heart. Let my words, let my truth, and, let, and, and, and open your eyes to the signs of my grace. That it may not be the river parting. It may not be a pillar of cloud of fire. But you know what? Look for those bread of crumbs. And know that I'm leading you. That I have not forsaken you. That you may feel lost, but I did not lose you. And that I love you with all my heart. Okay, so let's take a moment and just meditate on what you've heard. Let's take a time to simply pray and lift it up to the Lord. Let's pray.